What is the daily schedule like for an MD-PhD student here at the University of Utah School of Medicine? Does one have time to pursue hobbies and interests? And what does an expert fly fisherman really think about the movie A River Runs Through It? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions at Med Student Life. Uh, this is Dr. Chan. I have a great guest today, Chris Olson, one of uh, our MD PhDs. I think that's going to be what we're going to talk about today, correct? I think that sounds right. All right, Thanks Chris. for having me, Ben. So uh, talk about how, how did it start at the beginning? How did you get involved in MD PhD? Uh, well, you know, I think it it's really started early on um, when I got out of high school. Uh, I started doing some research in a, in a lab over the summer just to kind of get my feet wet. I'd always been a, a science person, but at that same time, time I'd already had a real passion for doing or at least I thought at that point that I wanted to wanted to go into medicine I didn't done some CNA experience and whatnot you know I kind of gotten my feet wet but once I got into the lab I realized just how cool you know science was and and the the idea of discovering something new and when you do do that you're the only person in the world that knows that and Mm -hmm. you can actually drive the field forward and so that's what got me thinking about MD PhD as if there's some sort of way that I could integrate both that excitement of science and discovery with uh, the application of the practice of medicine. Did you do anything different in preparing to apply the MD-PhD as an undergraduate? Um, I think in my application, it was probably more heavily weighted in the research side. And I say that just because when I uh, came down here, I actually did my undergrad at the University of Utah, and I started working in a lab part-time throughout the course of my PhD in in a chemistry lab, Dale Poulter's chemistry lab. So I think that probably weighted it a little bit more towards the research side. When I go on and do presentations myself, I sometimes get questions about the MD-PhD program. And what I always emphasize, you know, I'm not a PhD myself, I'm mm-hmm. just an MD, um, <laughs> is that I tell the undergraduates that to apply to the MD-PhD program, you need pretty strong research credentials right off the bat. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I, I would. And I don't necessarily think uh, for the sake of like – you know, uh, jumping through a hoop or anything like that for knowing those research credentials, but actually asking yourself that question, is this something that passions me? Because, you know, the truth is the MD PhD, it's a long, it's a long road. And if, if you're coming in when you go through the first two years of medical school and you take boards and, you know, that's stressful enough as it is. And then when you get to your PhD, if you don't absolutely love science and aren't really excited about science, um, you know, it, it, it may not be the right path. So I think having, um, having sufficient research experience not only to uh, know that it's something that you're interested in, but something that you really care about. Mm-hmm. I think awesome. Important. So what attracted you to the medical school here? Sounds like you went to undergrad here. Why did you decide to stick around? What, yeah, yeah, you know, honestly, um, so I was born and raised in Boise, Idaho, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Western boy. I'll, I'll openly admit that. I like the, the wide open spaces. I came down here, uh, you know, I grew up skiing, mm-hmm. and I came down here to, uh, to ski initially for, for my undergrad. I, you know, and, and uh, you know, it has a great, we have a great chemistry program uh, on main campus. It's, I think, number 21 in the country as far as chemistry programs go. And so, you know, combining the excellent academics there with all the beautiful natural resources that we have around us, I mean, the mountains, the rivers, we have so much here to offer. And um, so then after getting done with with my undergrad and and looking at places to go for my MD-PhD in graduate school, 
you know, that Utah was a top choice. Again, we've got an excellent medical school. We've got a great MD-PhD program, and it's a it's in a beautiful setting, um, you know, where you can work hard and, and, and play hard, so to speak. And so you kind of alluded to, to it. So the program set up during the first two years, you were with the regular MD students. And then after your second year, after you take board, step one, then you kind of step off the track, and then you kind of enter your PhD track. Does that sound about right? Yep, yeah. Yep, it is. And then... Three, four, five years, depending. I mean, there's nothing guaranteed in the PhD world, sure. right? Um, and then after you complete your PhD work, then you step back in and do the third and fourth year with the regular MD students. Yep, exactly. So I guess my first question is: is during the first two years, uh, do you do anything? Is there any contact between you and the PhD program, or is it just strictly MD? Um, you know, during the first couple years, you know, part of the process uh, to getting involved, to you know, setting yourself up to be successful in your PhD is ultimately once you start your PhD years, you have to join a lab. Mm-hmm. So in order to facilitate you know, joining the quote-unquote right lab or figuring, figuring out which labs are the right match for you, in the summer leading up to medical school and then in the summer you know, between first and second year, you're doing rotations, two, typically two rotations in the labs. But at the same time, you're also in, uh, in contact with senior students to kind of help guide you on the way and talk about labs and what your interests are and see if we can... Uh, guide people in the right direction to mm-hmm. to be successful in the in the more science part of their of their studies. So what kind of labs are there? What are, what are kind of the strong uh, PhD uh, tracks or groups that are here at the camp- on campus. Well, we have a lot. We have a lot of great programs here, mm-hmm. and that's that's um, and not only a lot of great programs, but uh, you don't necessarily have to. If, for example, you're doing neuroscience, a neuros- the neuroscience program it doesn't necessarily mean you can't talk with people that are biochemists, such as myself, or people in human genetics or or oncological science. Um, we have. Uh, a lot of communication between the different p- departments. The main programs, the main tracks that we have are the neuroscience program, and uh, I really apologize if I forget one of these <laughs> right off the top of my head, and then the programs under the umbrella of the uh, molecular biology and biological chemistry PhD programs, and I think that's uh, oncological science up in, up in HCI, biochemistry, medicinal chemistry in there, chemistry, biology, um, genetics, human mm-hmm. genetics. And so it sounds Probably like at the very beginning, you figure out which lab you're going to be in, right? Or, or is there an opportunity to change, or how does that work? Yeah, so that's, that's the idea with the, the couple of lab rotations prior to starting medical oh, school and then in between first and second years. You have, you know, presumably you've, uh, students that are interested will have, have gone on the internet, read about the faculty, or read some of their papers, uh, looked at the, you know, the funding situations, and kind of... Uh, got an idea of where they may be interested in, and then talking to some of us uh, senior students to help you know hone them uh, or or guide them in one direction or another. And so then you do one lab rotation, kind of get your feet wet, go back to medical school or actually begin medical school, then do uh, another lab rotation. And between those two, generally you have a pretty good idea of where you want to go. Sometimes people will do a third rotation uh, after they take step one mm-hmm. uh, before they join. Oh, okay. So other positives of the MD-PhD program, because I get these questions a lot from applicants, mm-hmm. is it, it, it helps offset costs, meaning that they help pay tuition. It, it does. It does do that. By, I would certainly... Not use that as a reason to, <laughs> to okay. apply into it, right. just because it. Is, I mean, it's a very long haul, right? Sure, it does. It does. The MD PhD program here, they uh, your tuition is waived both in your medical school years and your graduate school years, and you're paid a stipend um, throughout it mm-hmm. um, throughout the course of your PhD. So, yes, that's definitely an advantage. The downside to that, if you would call it a downside, is you know it, it's 
you're getting two doctoral degrees and and they're both very rigorous doctoral degrees and you have to be prepared to put in that seven eight nine years more more likely eight or nine years that it'll take in order to get that so you know there's there's a trade-off there if you pay for medical school if you're that's mainly your focus and you go through that and then get through your residency done and Mm -hmm. and then you're you know out in the workforce well you know, I'm still. <laughs> you're, you're still starting my residency. Very hard in your yeah, lab. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I sometimes compare it to indentured servitude, which, yeah, I, it, know, which I know is not completely accurate. But I always like to say that to people. So uh, yeah, so it's, there's a trade. Definitely trade. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So uh, and so, how's your experience been so far? Oh, you're 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 a fourth year now. Right? I am a fourth year, almost. Oh, yeah, two years oh. of medical school, two years, just about two years of yeah. PhD done, and yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that'll mean that I'm technically an upperclassman in in mm-hmm. June. That's. It's a crazy thought, yeah. Dr. Chan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fourth year, watching watching my friends graduate uh, medical school that I started medical school with, and I'm very proud and excited for them. Um, so my experience, is, my experience has been great uh, so far. You know, I, I actually took a little bit of a different approach into the MD-PhD program. I actually started um, in the PhD side and then um, did the first year of my PhD coursework and then uh, applied in. Uh, you know, medical school, medical school is awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is... Yeah, that's that's really all I can say about yeah. it. I mean, I well, enjoyed it. Let me just ask this: You made a reference to it. I I, I, I think the MD PhD program is fantastic. I just I just worry about the social aspect a little bit mm-hmm. because you know you start medical school, you have all these classmates, and after your second year, you kind of more or less say goodbye to them, right? And then you go work on your PhD, yeah. and then you kind of come back, and then you rejoin the medical school class, but it's not your class; it's sure. some other class. And so, I just wonder: do you do you ever think about that kind of like that that the social aspect kind of changing or shifting after you take step one? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, fortunately, after we took step one, um, it, it actually it didn't change too much. You know, that that core group of friends that we had throughout medical school. I mean, they they went and they were separated amongst themselves. Anyways, they went on to their third year clerkships and whatnot. So outside of outside of work and um, we were still able to meet and you know we have, we have family dinners at our house and we all come and cook and, and do that relatively frequently so okay, we were still able to stay in touch with everyone i'm it'll be different now that they're graduating and going to other areas okay. of the country for sure um but you know i think in those those uh first couple transition years to phd yeah you st- definitely still uh mm-hmm. are in touch with people and then you know then the other part is within the md phd program itself well there's only probably about 30 i think there's 31 students right now we have you know a few students per class and it's real really tight knit okay you know so it sounds like you say good but well you kind of your relationship changes with the medical students but then there's a whole nother family yeah there's you, a whole nother family yeah, a whole nother PhD support students. group yeah. to, that's yeah. great and so let's just to back up um, so when someone applies an MD PhD program here, they actually interview for two days. Right? Yeah. There's the PhD interview day, and then there's the MD day. Yes. Um, and I've spoken previously on the podcast about the typical MD day. What's the PhD interview day look like here? You'll basically be a- escorted around in the morning and the afternoon by a, a current MD PhD student, and that's one of the things that we really try and do um, for our students that come in is to have. A person or a or two contact people that they can go to with any questions that they have about this because ultimately if you're going to come to come to Utah for eight or nine years it's a or wherever you go really for any PhD it's a big commitment and we want to make sure that you know we're a good fit for you you're a good fit for us and, and it'll all work out so on the PhD interview day basically what ends up happening is that you know we meet early in the morning have some breakfast and then we'll es- escort you around to meet with scientific faculty and the mm-hmm. and the discussions the focus of those discussions on that day uh, may come may come to be why you want to be a physician scientist, but it's more heavily focused on your scientific background, 
research, mm-hmm. what you think is so cool about science, th- those sorts of topics. And oh. I think there's uh, we do either six or seven faculty mm-hmm. that you interview with over the course of that day. And then usually um, it's a little bit more celebratory because I think that night usually take them out to dinner. Yes. Yeah. And kind of, again, just, you know, again, know them, more relaxed settings. So. Absolutely. Um, and where do MD-PhDs and ultimately go? Where have they matched in the past? Oh, man. Yeah. So that we've had we've had students that have gone all over the place. We've got students at UCSF right now. We've got students at Mass General. We've got students. Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe Yale. We have a, a student. That was, Iowa, yeah, I think. Was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. We have, we've, we've had them uh, match in some very good residencies mm-hmm. in, in a wide variety of programs. Okay. Well, let, let's switch gears here, Chris. Um, you know, you're from Boise. Yep. You know, I'm looking. You look very rugged right now. Those, if you if you can if if you could see through the podcast, Chris is dressed in a very northern lumberjack style of wear. So I think <laughs> the outdoors. Jeans, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the outdoors mean a great deal to you. I, um, they do. So, so talk like so. Growing up in Boise, is that where like your love of the outdoors came from? Yeah, it, it definitely did. When I was a kid, my my father she, he owned an outdoor store um, in uh, in Boise, um, kind of like I guess what you would call an REI type store now. Um, And we spent a lot of time in the outdoors, born and raised, you know, that's, we went on camping trips and backpacking trips and, and, and grew up skiing. And Mm -hmm. so the outdoors have absolutely been a huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. And then that love of the outdoors, I think that's like translated into you becoming an advocate for the outdoors. And, and what, what, where did that start and how did you come to that point? You know, the thing is that part of the reason that I love living in Utah so much is because these these resources, like I've mentioned, like we have the greatest snow on earth. We have, I mean, mountain biking trails and 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 rivers and and all these beautiful resources around um, that really make living here a, a very wonderful place and a very w- well balanced place. And um, so my involvement is just trying to protect that resource for not only uh, you know people living here now, myself. I, I'm, you know, I'm going to have to go away to residency in a few years, but I would absolutely love to come back if these resources are protected, but also for generations in the future. You know, if things are, are, aren't taken care of now, then we won't have access to them later. Did that start in your like undergrad days to become an advocate, or, or where did that kind of come from? You know, it actually didn't. Um, my my main involvement right now is with a group called the Utah Stream Access Coalition, and uh, that group was founded in 2010, um, right after a bill passed the legislature that actually took away about 2,700 miles of rivers and streams from the public and handed it over to to uh, to private interests, and you know, coming coming from Idaho, it, it was just baffling to me that you could privatize a river. I just understood that they mm-hmm. were a natural resource for everybody's benefit, and so that organization was founded in 2010, and and that's about the time that I got involved with it, just because I was so you know, a lot of the rivers that I used to spend time on, now I was no longer allowed to spend. Is that time what on privatize, and, privatization looks like on a river? I mean, what does that look like when someone privatizes a river? A uh, barbed wire fence strung across it and a no trespassing sign. Oh, okay, so yeah. all right, because I know like. You know, I, I lived in California for part of my life, and I do know like beaches. There's kind of this tension with like public yeah. access, public access versus private beaches. Yeah. Is, is that kind of the same concept? It or? is. Kind, it is kind of the same concept there. You know, the the idea is that it's rooted in the Utah Constitution that the public owns the water and mm-hmm. that the public has a right to use that water under, underneath it. And you know, that includes you know the right to walk up a stream bed, for example, if if you're fishing or to eddy out if you're kayaking and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. as the current law states, it's it's illegal to do that if that flows over private property. But you know, we've we've 
proposed some legislation the past couple of years, and we've got a couple lawsuits against the state. So hopefully we can, okay. we can fix that. And I know you led a uh, you were you led a rally at the Capitol Hill. Yeah. So talk about that. What, what is that the first time you've led a rally? Um, it's it's the second time I've spoken at a rally. Yeah, okay. it was actually a little uh, stressful this time because I just completed my preliminary exams the day before, which mm-hmm. is kind of the for the non PhD speakers out there. That's kind of the step one equivalent of mm-hmm. the PhD world. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, we had uh, four hundred uh, over four hundred people on the Capitol steps um, rallying. You know, kayakers and fly fishermen, bird watchers, river users of all sorts there to rally uh, to support uh, support access. Well, um, and let's talk about streams or rivers. Yeah, that close. Like, where would some good rivers be? What would you recommend? Like, you know, for someone moving to Utah who's never been here before, what what, kind, what where are the best places in Utah? Oh man, that's that's a great question. Um, so. That's part of the – that's actually what makes living on this campus absolutely awesome because you have Foothill Drive that will take you right out to I-80. If you, from, coming from here, if you block out a 45-minute radius and say you want to go skiing, you have, you know, what, eight world-class ski resorts. And the same could be said for uh, world-class trout streams okay. uh, within the area. And, you know, there's also whitewater kayaking opportunities. So, you know, the Provo River, the Weber River, you know, the, both blue ribbon, state blue ribbon fisheries and, you know, 30 to 45 minutes away from campus. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, if you're going to be studying all afternoon, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice. You can go out and take a break, hit a midday hatch and then come back down and, and, and Is that what they there. call it, a midday hatch? Well, if there's bugs that are coming off in the oh. middle of the day, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole new vocabulary. Yeah, there's a whole lingo yeah. to the fly fishing world. <laughs> so how often do you get to go? Um, well, nowadays, nowadays less than, than probably I used to in my undergrad, but uh, you, can still, you can still find balance and, mm-hmm. and go. I try and get, get out at least once a week yeah. just to go to the river and keep the head on straight. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about the University of Utah School of Medicine is because, like, you know, I always tell people on their orientation day, we believe in a very healthy work-life play balance. You know, play hard, study hard. And it sounds like you're fulfilling both of those, Chris. I mean, you're yeah. working very hard, obviously, defending, you know, doing PhD-type stuff and right. passing boards and, and taking oral exams. But also you're having time to go out and pursue your passion, which yeah. sounds like it's rivers, streams, advocacy. So I think that's that's great. So. I, and I think that's really an important thing to do. I'd, I'd encourage the – the people that are listening to this that are encouraging or that are contemplating doing an MD PhD or really their MD degree as well, wherever you go, make sure you can find balance because mm-hmm. it you know it makes you a happier, healthier person. It'll make you a better doctor. It'll make you a better scientist. All right. Uh, last question. Our, our, a little bit of time left. Um, let's talk movies. A river <laughs> runs through it. Yeah. Great. Not accurate. <laughs> Hockey puck. What, what, what do you say? Oh, uh, you know. The, is that the best river movie of all time? <laughs> is that the best fly fishing river movie of all time? You know, it's hard to argue with uh, with Brad Pitt's shadow cast in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Norman McLean's a he's a great author, and I think Robert Redford does a great narration in that. Um, you know, I, I enjoy it. I think it's a, I think oh, okay. It's a good so, movie. so you would say. If you would watch it, it's not completely inaccurate. It's not completely inaccurate, though I, I would not uh, – probably would not use a metronome to, to dictate my casting story. <laughs> what would you use? Oh, time. Time. Experience. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. A feel for the river. So from zero to four stars, what would you give reverence for? As, as, as a man who knows rivers. As a man who knows rivers, river runs through it, I'd give it three out of four stars. Okay. Good. Good. All right. We'll end on that note. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Chris. Uh, thank you, Dr. Chan. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.